Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Miller, your host today, along with my partner, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Macon. We also host the popular medical podcast, Pure Spectrum. Today's guest is Christopher Robertson, Associate Dean for Research and Innovation and Professor of Law at the University of Arizona. His background and research interests overlap several academic disciplines, including bioethics, health law, incentives, behavioral economics, and more. His CV includes a PhD in philosophy and a law degree from Harvard. His newest book, Exposed, Why Our Health Insurance is Incomplete and What Can Be Done About It, was published by Harvard University Press in December of 2019. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Colin and Keith. Happy to be here. Well, just today, March 26th, right? So we're still, well, waist deep in this this uh, pandemic that's going on. What, what's going on in your world? Are you able to do the, the virtual classes with your students at University of Arizona? Are you able to catch up on the research? What's happening? Well, um, you know, product, productivity has really been slammed just by the, you know, the need to rearrange homework and family and, and everything else. But in terms of online classes, University of Arizona is kind of ahead of the curve. We started uh, several years ago creating a whole series of online courses. We've got graduate certificates in health law and, and all sorts of programs that are already online. So for our JD students, it really just meant pivoting um, to adopt that technology we've, we've already been embracing for other programs pretty rapidly with, with a video studio and content designers and, and, a, and a whole crew. So it's, it's been pretty seamless for us. We've been fortunate. And you find any extra time to work on other research, things that uh, you've had on the back, back burner? Unfor- you know, I've mostly just been slammed, uh, you know, doing op-eds around coronavirus and uh, podcasts and media and things like that. So, you know, in my life, I kind of have a, two different gears on my shifter. You know, sometimes I dive deep and burrow into a new book. And then other times I'm, I'm, I'm really just trying to get, get the ideas out there to a broader public. And I'm in that latter phase right now. Yeah, you are. That's exactly what we we're here to talk about. So this is a book that just came out uh, late last year called Exposed. Um, why health insurance is incomplete and what can be done about it. So, you know, that's an easy, you know, you know, Friday night read for sure, you know, easy topic to jump into. (laughs) (laughs) I I try to make it readable. I had my dad and my best friend, both uh, non-scholars, help me uh, surgically cut all the jargon out of it, or at least 90% of it. So hopefully it's readable. Well, they they did a great job then. Um, (laughs) And and we'll try to avoid spoilers in this as much as we can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It all gets fixed in the end. (laughs) He gets gets the girl. (laughs) All right. Well, Chris, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm on the road working. And one of the things I like about it is sometimes I am exposed to a subject or something interesting I wasn't going to look at otherwise. And that's something I'm going to pick up. And when I was beginning your book, I really had no idea how we got to where we are today with our insurance framework, the different payers, everything from co-pays to deductibles to annual enrollment. had no idea. You know, this is a long road to get here. And we're so frustrated by so much of this all year long, yet many of these ideas, some of them were Nobel Prize winning economists who, who contributed to this. Some of these were real battles that happened um, you know, legislatively. I found it very interesting, actually. I think it's helpful for a lot of people just to have a brief history of, of this. Give us an idea where the idea of having health insurance came from and kind of take us down history, especially here in the United States. Sure. I mean, there was a time in which we both had uh, very little evidence about what worked in healthcare. You know, we had treaters, uh, physicians um, who were practicing uh, in, in, in techniques that were passed down hand to hand from, from their mentors. 
Um, and we and at that time, healthcare was actually relatively inexpensive as well. Um, if you got sick, there wasn't a whole lot the physician could do, but there was also not a whole lot the physician could charge. Um, but but as we started to modernize uh, our healthcare system and, and develop these phenomenal drugs and phenomenal devices that that, that really had powerful economic value, um, uh, the prices uh, and the costs started coming along with them. And it, it soon became clear that, that it, it would be infeasible for people to buy healthcare out of pocket. Um, the costs of, of being in a hospital, even in the, in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, started, started growing and beyond the scale of, of what an individual could risk. And so um, uh, we started seeing uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield pop, pop up. And then after World War II, there was such a, a pressure um, uh, to try to hold down wages in the United States from rapid inflation uh, after the war. And, uh, so what we saw work, uh, employers do instead is start offering other benefits in lieu of wages, uh, such as, uh, health insurance. It became a way to provide value, uh, without, uh, accelerating the wages too much. In the seventies and eighties and nineties, however, that same strategy, uh, really prevented any real growth in wages for, for decades as we shifted more and more of our health spending into insurance coverage, um, and we, we actually had no in increases in actual take-home pay otherwise. And so in the 60s and 70s, economists started really worrying that, that insurance may be doing more harm than good. It's essentially sinking our, our social welfare gains into this one particular form of consumption, which is healthcare. And so economists really started focusing on really health insurance as a potential uh, welfare loss, as a potential economic problem. And that's where in the U.S. there became this fascination, really, with uh, using cost exposure, things like copays, deductibles, and things like that. And I can talk more, I've, I've a long answer already, but I can talk more about, about how that's grown uh, since then. It seems like a simple idea, and it seems like something you talk about that's generally agreed on both sides of the aisle, that you, know, that you should have some skin in the game, right? That's what deductibles and copays were designed to do. And also as cost reduction tools. Give us an idea, first of all, I think about those as um, cost sharing tools. That's uh, you know, the terminology I would have thought of before reading your book, but you call it a cost exposure. What do you mean by that? You know, the cost sharing, it's, it's always risky to, to define a new term in the very first chapter of your book to try to redefine it. And, uh, but, but I do that very explicitly because um, insurance is actually the way we share costs. When you get sick and the entire insurance pool is going to pay those hospital bills on your behalf. So the insured portion are, are literally the shared costs, whereas the uninsured portion, the cost payment, uh, the copay, the deductible is actually the unshared cost. That's what John Smith has to pay for his daughter's health care. And so um, it really is almost a euphemism or a misnomer to call the copay a cost sharing because it's actually the exact exact opposite. The second reason that cost exposure is a better concept is because we actually design these mechanisms to try to deter people from consuming the care. We actually want them to see the price tag and sometimes run away and say, no thanks, doc. Right. Um, and, and so it, it's really the exposure that's doing the work, not actually the out-of-pocket payment. Because again, it's not necessarily being paid if it succeeds in deterring the healthcare in the first place. So that's a reason that an out-of-pocket payment doesn't really make sense as the right label. And then the third reason there is that, you know, a lot of research has shown that Americans just don't have enough money in their pockets to pay uh, 
$15,000 maximum out-of-pocket expenditure, which is allowed under current law. And so calling it an out-of-pocket payment is kind of a euphemism too. People aren't walking around with $15,000 in their pocket, much less even in their bank. So we're really, we don't like to admit it, but it ends up really being a form of medical debt. Um, we're financing, and that becomes the choice as a matter of policy. Are we going to finance it through health insurance or are we going to finance it through medical debt, consumer medical debt? Um, so that's why I think cost exposure is the most you know, capacious term to capture these dynamics. Yeah. It's interesting. There was a time when um, the copay was, from a provider standpoint, uh, the copay was the part that we uh, would let go, the providers. We didn't worry too much about it because the insurance was covering the bulk of it. And then it switched over uh, to the last few years in practice that the copay was actually the the only cash we had on hand because we couldn't rely on the providers paying. Sorry, the um, the third party providers paying. So it became a totally different thing. It was like uh, almost like the insurance may or may not kick in, but the cash flow was all coming from that that mythical out of pocket thing. <laughs> but that really becomes a challenge. It's put um, it's put providers in the awkward position of having to to collect those copays, exactly. also, right? Yeah. right? And to chase chase down patients who write a bad check, or um, you know, decide on the margin. You know, am I really going to turn away a patient who who doesn't have a way to pay that today? Um, so um, it it really also created a huge degree of of, of um, administrative work to to keep track of and collect all these. Um, much more complicated than, than um, you know, a single-payer universal payment for all your patients. Yeah. So, so looking at the development of the way healthcare works today, there are obviously branching points. At what point did we take the wrong branch? Is there one place where you can say, uh, we shouldn't have turned down that route? Or was this just an organic change that was inevitable when we started providing healthcare insurance? So I think one piece that was a failure was to um, not move more aggressively and um, uh, either eliminate employer-based care uh, or, um, or, or make it so much so seamless. So it's nominally employer-based, but it's really portable to, to move across employers. So one disadvantage of, of having health insurance by employers is that, of course, that makes your job really sticky. And it's actually contrary even to the American principle of entrepreneurship, where you should be able to leave your job, go start your own business, and not have to worry about how your diabetes is going to be treated or how your kid's asthma is going to get treated. So I think that was one big failure. But the second one that's really more the focus of my book is, is in the 60s and 70s, we have really allowed the, the economic idea of moral hazard, this idea that health insurance was creating all this wasteful spending. It, it became like this elephant in health policy discussions where it's, it's a relatively minor thing, and it's based on, it turns out, um, you know, uh, a political or an economic theory that patients are the ones deciding what health care to consume, when in fact, all the research since then has started to show that it's really the providers. They're telling me whether I get the patented drug or not. They're telling me whether I get that, you know, MRI for lower back pain or not. Um, patients aren't in a very good position to really second guess their providers since after all, that's why they go to the physician in the first place. So as we've seen since the sixties, we've seen a dramatic increase in co-pays, deductibles and co-insurance. And just in the last decade alone, for example, they've grown 212% deductibles have mm -hmm. at a time when premiums have only grown five times, which is still huge. Um, and, uh, uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's actually 10 times the rate of growth of, growth of inflation. So um, I think that's been the air uh, that's just compounded year over year. 
you know, we hear these big numbers. I, th- I always find it helpful to have a benchmark. So if we look at other, you know, Western European countries, Canada, as a percentage of their GDP. What is, you know, what's an average for a lot of these countries compared to where we are? So as a GDP, GDP healthcare spending in the U.S. Is, um, has been pushing upwards of 17, 18, 19 percent um, in, in the recent decades. Whereas we see other developed countries getting their entire health systems funded at uh, less than about 11.8 percent. So depending on which country you look at, New Zealand, Canada, others, they're all down below. So, so we're in about, you know, 60 percent surplus spending over these other countries. And, um, uh, but we're still, but that's even, even accounting for the fact that we've still got 30 million people underinsured, uninsured and, and 60 million people underinsured. So we see these other countries um, getting uh, uh, much better health outcomes on, on many dimensions, covering all their people, having very little cost exposures out of pocket, um, um, but actually seeming to be more efficient health systems overall. Yeah, not to mention longevity and, um, you know, public health measures are generally better in a lot of these countries. And that's not me making an argument one way or another for this. I just think it's helpful to have these benchmarks because otherwise, how do you know how you're doing other than comparing yourself to someone else? So um, it's an important starting point. This idea of moral hazard, I think most people listening understand what this means, but when we're talking about spending someone else's money maybe define that for us. And this is a really, really important thing, especially in the sixties and seventies and eighties, all the way up until Reagan. What, what were they yeah. talking about here? I mean, the basic concept is, is based on a consumer um, financial market, a, a market for consumer goods. So if you go to buy a television, for example, and you go in to Best Buy and you look at the different dimensions and the resolutions and the colors, um, when you ultimately take the one off the shelf that you've chosen and walk out and buy it, you put down, say, $750 in cash and you get a TV in return. And we know that that transaction has actually improved social welfare because you wouldn't have parted with your $750 if you didn't value the TV as being worth at least $750 or more. So we see every exchange and go, woohoo, we've improved social welfare because someone has freely traded up in value by exchanging money for a product. The the theory of moral hazard says, but wait, in health insurance, that's not how it works because you're not putting your own $750 out to get that MRI. Instead, you're putting out um, $750 of the insurer's money, other people's money, as you said. And so when we see someone consume the MRI under full insurance, we actually don't know that that's improved social welfare because they're they're voting with their feet, their own choice. uh, It does not reflect an exchange. And so in theory, then, people could be consuming MRIs at, say, $750 when they're really only worth, say, $50 to them personally. If they were spending their own money, they would have declined to spend $750. And in that case, we've actually harmed social welfare is the theory. So this all makes perfect sense, except um, that we, when, when we think about um, uh, who's really making healthcare dis- con- consumption decisions, whether patients are, are in a position to make those valuations in the first place. Um, but that's the notion of moral hazard, is that when you're spending other people's money, um, you may well be doing more harm than good to social welfare. And I think it's something we have to admit, that the patient is always at an information disadvantage. 
and not just the lack of years of schooling, but just time and focus. It's just not something they've thought about until they get this, you know, life-changing diagnosis sometimes. And I don't even know if this is a good analogy. I was just thinking about this as you're talking. I mean, buying a TV, easy, right? I'm looking at one right here. I've owned for years and still working. And, and you know, you can go to Consumer Reports. You can compare online. Um, not so true if you go buy a mattress. Uh, you know, you don't buy a mattress very often, but when you do, every single brand is specific to that store that you're in. So you can't cross compare. You can lay on it and try it out, but you have no idea what it's going to be like to sleep on that thing. Now, some companies let you try it out a little longer, but there's just, <laughs> it's made it impossible to really know how to compare it with anything else. And healthcare is kind of like that in a way. You know, you don't always have information about um, infection rates and success rates with, you know, particular procedure that the specialist, specialist does. And you can't compare them to anyone else. It's very hard to get this information. Or if you even see it, to be able to analyze it for yourself. So that's what you're getting at, isn't it, Chris, that the reason the government has to be involved, that other bigger parties have to be involved is this doesn't work like a normal marketplace. That's right. Uh, some fascinating new research by Michael Chernu and colleagues out of Harvard has shown that uh, even when patients have substantial out-of-pocket costs, um, they tend to do really whatever their physicians recommend. So they've they actually, it's a, a beautiful study using uh, GIS data um, to look at uh, where patients consumed MRIs, to go back to that example. They found that when a, when a physician recommended a particular MRI provider through primary care physicians says, oh, I need you to get, get a scan, go to location X. On average, patients drew, drove by six other lower cost providers uh, in order to get to the one their physician recommended. And, and I would put that, ex it's exactly the issue you, 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 you raise is that like mattresses, how could a patient know if those other five were really comparable? You know, maybe, maybe we know MRIs are largely a commodity, but um, patients don't know. And so they go where their physicians tell them. I want to go back to this RAND study. This is something you and other researchers have used for a long time. And I, I have to admit, I never heard about this before, but this was a, an experiment where the researchers were able to, almost like dialing knobs on a uh, machine, tweak the copays, tweak the, you know, the insurance premiums, and look at how things actually worked out. Uh, first of all, tell us, tell us what this study was designed to do and why it's been so important. It really was a remarkable feat of social science that I'm not sure we could get approved by an well, ethical, sure. <laughs> ethical review board today. Because back in the 70s, 70s, they literally randomly assigned families to different forms of health insurance. There were five different profiles, but, but in one form, it was what they called free care, that all the care you needed would be provided by uh, the insurance company to other uh, mechanisms that had increasingly larger copays and deductibles. And they managed to um, then observe uh, how much healthcare people spent or consumed during the, the period. And, they, and to some degree, they're also able to observe the health outcomes. What Did people die? Did people get sicker if they uh, were exposed to copays and deductibles? And so the landmark top line finding was that for median families in terms of income and, and health, uh, giving them larger cost exposures cause them to substantially reduce their health spending. Uh, and it seemed to do so with, without hurting their health. Nobody additional was dying in the, in the system that was getting these cost exposures and declining health care. 
But as you looked a little closer at the data, um, they were able to determine that the healthcare people were declining. They were doing so indiscriminately. They were declining what we'd consider high-value care, like an antibiotic for a bacterial infection. That's high-value care. We actually want people to take that health care if it's an antibiotic for a bacteria. But if it's an antibiotic for a viral infection, you're just wasting money. You're actually creating bacterial resist, antibiotic, bacterial resistance. That's low-value care. We want people to decline that. Exposing people to a $50 copay was not causing them to get more discerning. It was just causing, it was like rolling a die. And if it comes up six, don't consume the care. And so it turns out that it, it was a really crude mechanism. Two reasons for that, if I could say, is that, you know, um, we already have these gateways on health spending, which are physicians. So again, if the physician is prescribing you that antibiotic, you take it uh, if you can afford it. And you don't if you can't afford it. But again, that's not tracking uh, value. Last little point I want to mention about our two final points uh, about the RAND health insurance experiment uh, is that, uh, unfortunately, the, the study wasn't sufficiently powered statistically to look very closely at poorer patients and those with, with chronic diseases. But some of the data suggested they actually uh, had worse health outcomes uh, due to cost exposure. And the last piece that was really only noticed uh, and emphasized in the years since was that patients who were giving these, who were, uh, had these larger cost exposures were more and more likely to actually drop out of the study, a problem we call attrition, mm -hmm. which as much as I love the idea of a true randomized experiment, it's no longer a randomized experiment if people are self-selecting whether they want to stay in the study. Um, and right. so uh, it ended up sort of undermining the, the ultimate validity of the, of the experiment. So this is kind of like uh, the, the famous uh, Framingham study, um, heart study that was started in 1948. And it's very useful because it was a longitudinal study looking at factors that might contribute to heart disease. But you know, it was a small town in Massachusetts with mostly white people. So you know, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not how you would design a study today, but um, they're also just really expensive and hard to do and take forever. So you know, these end up being really important research tools. And I can't emphasize enough how at a, at a moment in time, the RAND experiment was incredibly powerfully influential for the idea of, hey, let's jack up cost exposures. Look, they work. RAND right. said so. And they did work, right? I mean, it, it can reduce costs if that's your goal. You know, if you're an HR in a company, that's what you want to do. But if you want your employee working for a long time and healthy, that's a different question to ask, right? That's right. So um, you quoted... Um, Economist from MIT, Jonathan Gruber, he was actually on our show last year, and he said, uh, here, higher coinsurance rates with an out-of-pocket limit can significantly reduce health care use without sacrificing health outcomes for the typical person, which is really our main goal, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. And That's one of our goals. We need to worry about the typical person, but also the non-typical persons, too. <laughs> well, that's right, because they, they contribute more, you know, as a matter of bad luck, which we'll, we'll talk about that, too. Um, this study, uh, how long did it go on and how many people were in it? I was just curious. I didn't have a chance to actually dig into it myself. As I recall, it was uh, roughly like 5,000 families. So it was a relatively large study and uh, it, it ran for a couple of years, maybe three years, as I recall. So, um, so it was a substantial, at, huge investment. Yeah. So, and they were still having to pay out of pocket, right? This wasn't like funds provided to them and they could choose to pay for the insurance, nothing like that. It was actually a fairly complicated when you dig a little further in. Um, you know, um, 
although in one of the plans, for example, they were exposed to 25% of the costs out of, out of pocket. But then there was this really cool feature that, that income capped it. So that it was capped according to 10% of their income. So this is one of the reasons that I think it didn't have horrible effects on the median family is that the cost exposures are actually scaled down for, right. for what they could reasonably pay. What's amazing, though, is they've, we forgot that feature of it when, defi- when designing real cost exposures, which are typically not scaled down uh, in employer-based markets or in Medicare. Why do you think that is? Because that seems like a central message looking back, you know, <laughs> hindsight, but that's hindsight, right? I, I, I mean, I, I read through all this, you know, we're talking everybody from Johnson to Reagan to Clinton, too. You know, mm-hmm. we, people need to take personal responsibility. And I think we all do believe in that. Uh, but it's the tools weren't the same responsibility for every person. So I mean, do you think it was just too complex to introduce this in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, during these healthcare reform battles or it just kind of got lost in the shuffle? I think it, it got lost in the shuffle. It, it didn't necessarily comport with a particular political ideology. Um, it's easy to, you know, point a finger and say, um, you know, you're not taking enough responsibility. Um, but if we haven't appropriately scaled the responsibility to what you could afford to pay, um, you know, then, then that ends up being sort of empty rhetoric. So, you know, I, I guess it was easier to say everyone has a thousand dollar deductible rather than saying everyone has a deductible equal to, you know, two uh, percent of their family income. Um, but we do that in other places, right? And frankly. Uh, in our employer-based health insurance market, that's a particularly good place to scale cost exposure to income since the employer is providing both of those, right? Right. <laughs> Their yeah. HR department knows your income pretty well because they're paying it every month. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, but do you think the uh, it was partly also the influence of the insurance companies because they've, even in um, the 60s and 70s, things like the Blue Cross and Blue Shields had enormous influence, enormous lobbying power. Isn't it likely that they said, no, we don't want, uh, we don't want it to be a percentage. We want everybody to pay the full amount of the copay. Well, I mean, I guess it's somewhat becomes semantic as to what's the full amount, right? It could be you, you define the full amount as, as whatever has been assigned to this patient. We already have this fragmented system where, you know, there are multiple employers, each with their own copay profile, you know, even if they're within Blue Cross. So it would require, you know, back then you would have had to print a different card for each patient showing, you know, their out-of-pocket maximum. Once we move to... Um, you know, to, to, to digital healthcare where, um, you know, it's, it's pretty easy and, and it's already done to look up, well, what is each patient's copay? Um, so um, it's definitely feasible now technologically. And I, I think it probably could have been done in the first place. One more thing about this RAND study before we go on. So maybe about a few years, five years tops, what were they looking at for health outcomes within that short amount of time um, to, you know, see what that effect is? Do you remember? Yeah, so they they obviously were tracking mortality. Uh, they were looking to see if people keeled over, but that, that's a rare enough outcome that even with five thousand families, um, it's it's not likely you're going to get statistical significance on that outcome. So they were looking at other like proximate outcomes like um, blood ple- blood pressure um, uh, and um, uh, you know uh, diabetic ins- uh, sh- blood sugars control and things like that to see if, you know, things that we think are related to health outcomes, they were able to measure pretty well um, through, through medical, me- medical records reviews. 
Well, moving on. Uh, so you've done, you and others have done quite a bit of research into what the effects of these copays and deductibles can have on people, even up to bankruptcy and you know financial collapse of families in some cases. What what have you learned now? What do we know now by you know uh, putting copays at different levels and deductibles and then capping your you know ultimate exposure to costs and the effects they can have on on people's real health? Yeah, so you know the Affordable Care Act uh, was primarily focused on getting more people covered, right, and expanded health insurance coverage through Medicare Medicaid expansion and the individual exchanges. And it did a little bit on this front of protecting people from uh, cost exposures. But in the employer market, it still allows a family to be exposed to up to $16,300 per year. And if you think about what that amount would mean for a median family, you know, that's a quarter of your entire family income that could be wiped out in a year if you get in a car wreck or, or get cancer or get, um, uh, you know, have, need a lung transplant. So it ends up being devastating levels of, of debt. So there's a whole body of research about the mental health uh, costs of debt. And, um, and it turns out that debt is, is associated with suicide. Death is associated with depression. I'm not, debt is associated with suicide. Did I say death is associated with suicide? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, medical debt is associated with suicide, as is a, a range of other mental health problems. And so I think this is one of the most interesting uh, uh, thoughts is that we've actually designed our healthcare financing system in a way that literally makes us sick in terms of our mental health by burdening people with, with huge uh, costs that are themselves feel overwhelming and create uh, their own problems. Um, so that, that's been, I think, one of the most proximate uh, examples. The second uh, area that having uh, big healthcare cost exposure affects health is through adherence. You know, if someone has had a, um, a heart attack, for example, it's really important that they stay on statins and for some patients, blood thinners and blood pressure drugs, uh, or else it really increases the risk of a future heart attack, in which case they might be back in the hospital with more huge medical bills. And several studies have shown that uh, patients like that uh, uh, will uh, adhere to their, uh, their medicine prescriptions. They actually fill all their prescriptions more often uh, as a physician recommends uh, if they have the cost exposures removed. Mm -hmm. uh, and similarly, um, diabetic patients, um, uh, lower income diabetic patients that are exposed to big cost exposures uh, are, uh, show up at the emergency room more often having uh, unmanaged diabetes which can lead to neuropathy and, and, and other secondary problems as well. So that's, that's I guess, three two, uh, two categories of examples, mental health and adherence, where cost exposures have been shown to really be problematic from a health perspective. Yeah. So uh, you know, we're getting, uh, I guess, some time here, but uh, make sure that we're getting to your central argument here and um, have enough time to spend on that. Something, you know, people listening, you know, are going to think, you know, again, back to, personal agency, having control of your own decisions and having some responsibility for your actions. So first thing, smoking, right? I and mean, that's one of the most obvious things, you know, if someone's, if a patient's coming into Keith's clinic and they want it because Keith's saw mostly children. So hopefully they're not doing this, but <laughs> say he was I seeing that, adults. I wish that were true. Well, yeah, there was an well, era where the, the marketing strategy was start them early. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So we'll just assume, you know, um, you know, Patient comes in to see Keith and, you know, two packs of cigarettes a day, you know, 
three a days at McDonald's eating, no exercise, hasn't seen a family doctor in ages. You know, any, you know, any physician treating that patient is going to be paddling upstream pretty heavy already, right? So, and, and, and doctors, nurses listening, they see these patients all the time. And the pushback is going to be, you know, these people have made bad decisions and I don't want to have to pay for those bad decisions. Um, what's really cool, Chris, is in addition to being a law professor, you're also a student of philosophy. So <laughs> you're, you're just the kind of guy to think deeply about these sort of things. So, so tell me, how do you think about that idea of personal responsibility and how we should think about it in the context of policy recommendations and, and improvements to our system? So it, the bottom line, I think, is, is absolutely correct. We do need to take responsibility for our own health and, our, and, and we do have really profound levels of power to do so. Um, you know, uh, uh, behaviors are uh, one of the primary drivers of health outcomes, um, whether it's, it's eating or smoking or drinking or lacking of exercise. Um, the problem, though, is that they're generally underdetermined in that um, when you see a patient who is, um, has congestive heart failure, um, we don't really know from the back end um, what mix of behavior, environment, and genetics actually cause that outcome. So some diabetic patients, for example, um, uh, have idiopathic diabetes, especially in type 1, for example, where we actually still don't know the cause of it and we have no reason to think there's a behavioral correlate with it. And so um, the challenge then is, is ex post setting a policy um, that, um, uh, that, that creates the right incentives when for any given case, we don't know the mix of individual behavior versus non-individual behavior as the causal factor. It's a causation problem. So in my view, we really should focus more on taxing the risky behaviors uh, at, which, at which point we know where the causation is. So I'd rather see uh, uh, taxes on tobacco rather than um, cost exposures on, on lung transplants because lung transplants, again, can be needed for all sorts of different reasons, uh, whereas we know that every pack of cigarettes is increasing your risk. And so that's, that's exactly the sort of strategy we, we're on. Of course, we have huge tobacco taxes already, but to the extent you think there is more risk that we're still... Uh, haven't uh, uh, internalized, we should raise those tobacco prices. And so that would be true of other uh, risky activities as well. I think um, uh, that's the way to get the personal responsibility to incorporate the costs. Because sooner or later, um, uh, these patients um, uh, are going to be imposing costs on the system one way or the other. Uh, we're not going to effectively leave them out on the street to die. Um, so uh, we're going to be bearing the costs collectively. So we should recoup them on the front end not the back end. Yeah. I mean, it's just like if my neighbor's house is on fire, I could ignore it because it's not my house, but it's going to affect me eventually. So it's probably my interest, not just being a good neighbor, but in my personal interest to call 911 and deal with it. Exactly. And also from a resource standpoint, we want to prevent the, the congestive heart failure from happening because it's always much more expensive to pay for the, the cardiac care or the lung transplant than it is to prevent that. And, and even from a behavioral perspective, too, you want to make those costs salient at the consumption decision, right. um, not, not tell someone, you know, if you smoke 50 years from now, you might need a lung transplant and you're going to have to pay $20,000 for it. That's not going to be salient the way as, oh, I'm buying this pack of cigarettes. Wow, it's $10. Maybe I won't buy it. Right. And, and, and the research shows this as well. 
the single biggest um, the behavioral factor for smoking or, or alcohol use is, is the price of it. Right. We should probably just match it to the highest copay that showed the lowest usage. There you go. <laughs> we already have the we already have the metrics. We just you know just match them. There you go. All right, Chris. So so we have enough time for you to you know go over the main arguments in your book and some of the solutions you're proposing, and not totally go over time here. I, I thought you know we talked a little bit about this before we got started. Everyone's heard about this because there's been a lot of buzz in the news. This is called Haven Vision. You go to Haven Healthcare, which sounds like a rehab center, but this is actually um, uh, an organization headed up by Atul Gawande. Everybody's heard about. He's the general surgeon who's a big time writer and staff writer for the New Yorker. And this is all backed by Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan. And whatever they're doing, we don't know because there's not much on their website, but they're working on some big solution to get healthcare costs down, presumably for their employees, but then maybe having lessons that can be broad, more broadly adopted, but that's all we know. We don't, we don't know anything. Chris, if you were asked to come advise these guys, Warren Buffett gave you a call and said, Chris, you know, read your book, you know, I need your thoughts on this. And assuming we're probably in the same general kind of, you know, partisan stalemate that we're in right now, policy recommendations aren't one of them. Uh, I'm curious, what could they do, you know, within those bigger companies and within, and this is, you know, your law professor hat here, within the legal framework that we, we live in today, both federal laws and state and local laws, what, what freedom do they have to make changes and what's realistic here? Just if you had to make some guesses. Sure. Well, we've already talked about um, scaling cost exposures to income. Um, so I'd love to see for their employers, for their employees, them creating a cost sharing profile if they're going to continue using copays and deductibles. It needs to be lower for lower paid employees and higher for higher paid employees for all the reasons we've discussed. A second thing I really hope they would do is, is remove cost exposures from the sorts of healthcare that we, we, they want their patients, their employees consuming. Things like insulin, zero cost exposure. Things like statins, zero cost exposure. We shouldn't be nudging and they shouldn't be nudging their patients slash employees away from what we know is good healthcare. Um, but but more generally, I would suggest that that um, we need to quit creating problems with cost exposure, but they sure are not the solutions to wasteful spending. And for that, you really need to pivot to the real drivers of healthcare consumption in the U.S., which are the providers. I would really focus on aligning their interests with thrift and health. So one way to do that is, of course, move away from a fee-for-service model. A fee-for-service model incentivizes them to provide more service and generate more fees. I think that is, is, should be by now uh, clearly dead. I would rather see physicians moving to salary models. I think we have some beautiful examples of that in places like the Cleveland Clinic. Physicians tend to prefer it, actually. Take home your check. Don't worry about trying to run a small business. Instead, worry about providing the best care for your patients. Focus on the science, the patient relationships. Uh, and so I think moving physicians to salary can make everyone happier and give you sort of the, the basic tools of management, um, which we've discovered in every other play, uh, part of the economy, um, where we can really align incentives, create uh, outcome targets, uh, and manage to those goals. Um, so that would be the main focus I would suggest is, you know, um, stop doing the harmful things with patient cost exposure and instead focus on the physicians and start doing some rational things on that side. So could that look like, 
a telemedicine option with primary care because I mean, these are big companies, Amazon's everywhere, JP Morgan's everywhere. Um, Berkshire Hathaway owns a bunch of different companies. I don't know how deep they want to go with whatever they're working on here. Um, but you can't possibly build your own clinics in every town and city in America. I guess you could have a, maybe even a direct primary care model where it's a membership and they can, you know, see their physician, just like we're seeing each other right now over teleconference and then have some other payment model if they have to go in and then maybe, I don't know, perhaps like centers of excellence. So they go to a particular health system like the Mayo Clinic or somewhere else if they have an elective procedure with enough lead time ahead of their, you know, their treatment to get on a plane and go there and plan it out. Is something like that? Is that what you're thinking of? I think telemedicine should be a big part of the story. And I'm, I'm delighted we've spent, you know, over 40 minutes now talking about something other than COVID. Yeah. But um, COVID is really proving uh, this is it's, it's a chance for telemedicine to shine. Uh, Secretary Azar has uh, exercised emergency powers to allow telemedicine across state lines. This is something that health policy nerds like me have been working on for decades because so, it makes sense. So legally, what was sense. prohibiting that before? Um, it, uh, the state-based licensure of physicians. So you had to have a license in every state where your patient would be. So if you want to provide a, a real, you, so a telemedicine provider would have to create a roster of physicians who could cover the entire country with licenses. And there was no single way to get a license. Unlike there's a nursing compact that allows nurses to essentially take their license from one state to the next, just right. like we take our, right. take our driver's license from one state to the next. We didn't have anything like that for physicians. There was another compact, but it really doesn't solve those problems. So, so I think um, if if uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon can use this moment to lock in a nationwide telemedicine policy permanently, it will really open up this sort of innovation. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I thought about care. that. That's interesting. And again, it's win-win. Um, patients don't like showing up in a doctor's office and waiting an hour either. Uh, there's been some really cool, more localized telemedicine experiments. There's a, a group called Oscar in New York City uh, that that uh, patients seem to really appreciate the chance to whip out their phone and, and and be able to see another face immediately. So I think that's a great example of a way that, right. that innovation can help. So I'll ask you to take the ball for a minute. Um, the uh, My wife is uh, a provider in one of the big hospitals here in Dallas, and they've suddenly released all this bandwidth so you can read films from home and all these things. She's concerned uh, as soon as it's over, it's all gone. It magically disappears. Do you think this is here to stay? Is this going to be one of the the benefits, not really a benefit, but one of the, the effects that, uh, of the COVID pandemic that, that will actually help alter the, the, la- uh, the landscape of healthcare? I think so. I think it's, it's going to, um, it, you know, it's hard to put a cat back in the bag, whatever your analogy is, right? Um, I think people are going to see uh, the, the utility of this. They're going to see that, frankly, the laws were merely protectionist. They were local state doctors and local state boards trying to um, reduce competition. Um, and then, uh, once you've opened that up, I think it's going to be very hard to roll it back. And, and this is an area where thank goodness, um, I, uh, all the research and data I've seen suggests there's, there's, there's real upside here. Right. And you actually had a couple of case examples where some of these, these, uh, changes have been implemented. One was Pitney boys. Um, give us a couple ideas what's going on there. Cause this has been tried or is being tried right now, right? Some of the 
things we've been talking about this morning. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of, of literally just scaling cost exposure as a percent of income, <laughs> scaling that maximum annual cap. But um, Pitney Bowes did it a slightly different way. They just created two different cost exposure profiles, one for people at the management level or above, which exposed them to more costs since they could afford it, and another profile for, for other people uh, in the lower levels of the company who had lower incomes. And so that's it's a way to keep it simpler. You, you have two big pots rather than an infinite scale. So I think that shows you know, uh, one feasible mechanism. Comcast, on the other hand, the cable company that, that uh, everybody loves to hate, uh, is actually doing amazingly well uh, in this space. They actually eliminated cost exposures for most of their patients, for most of their employees, um, which, you know, frankly, it sounds radical in the employer market. But let me just emphasize that in the U.S., we have Medicare, which has 20% uncapped cost exposures. Right. But increasingly large portions of that population are actually getting Medicare Advantage plans whose primary function, one of the main ones, is actually to eliminate those cost exposures. Mm -hmm. And instead, they use narrower networks and, and you know, um, management of physicians and things like that to lower costs instead. So uh, patients in those uh, plans tend to love them. And it's a, a real example of how uh, you don't need uh, cost exposures to have an efficient, happy plan. So uh, as a researcher, do you find some of these companies willing to share data and let you kind of look under the hood to see how things are going? Or are they a little more tight about that? And then what are the, the laws concerning that? Because obviously HIPAA is part of it, but um, there's a lot to learn here is what I mean. You know, uh, how much access do you have? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, most of what we learned over the last decade is from companies who have been willing to A, actually do experiments say we're going to uh, sometimes randomize or we're going to open up our data and do a real clear pre-post experiment. Uh, one of the huge tech companies, by the way, um, uh, had, a, had a, a big paper in one of the top economics journals where they actually used the, the tech company's data as they moved to a high deductible health plan. And so I think the most cutting edge companies realize that, that, that we need evidence about what works and what doesn't. And I think that was kind of cool of the era we're in is the companies are starting to think like scientists, right? Doing an A-B test for your marketing is now just the normal thing to do. Like you'd almost be negligent as a chief marketing officer if you ran a digital ad without testing different versions of it. Right. And so we just need to get that same logic more and more into health policy, health insurance design. And we're seeing it happen, but so far on more of an ad hoc basis, company by company. Yeah. Are the uh, health insurers and the providers and the hospitals willing to share their data with you with this research? Yeah. Um, so there's always, um, you know, some, some red tape that exists for, for good uh, purposes of privacy. Uh, but increasingly, we are getting to uh, a learning healthcare system. Um, most of the large health systems have at least one major uh, academic center. You know, that's the way to get to the cutting edge new technologies. Um, so that also then connects the social scientists or the policy analysts like me uh, can get access to the to the same data um, and and do you know broader analyses as well. So I think that's actually one of the good things about the U.S. healthcare system is it's designed around these academic hubs, and the academic hubs can do both policy research as well as biology and medical research. Right. Well, Chris, I hate to cut us off here, but we're at the hour. I know you've got another meeting you got to jump onto, and uh, you got to continue on with our. Homework day. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is great. I really it appreciate it. Um, before we get going, um, just tell everybody here how they can learn more about you, find your book, and follow some of your work. 
Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Prof C Robertson, uh, or you can find me uh, at University of Arizona uh, in my profile there. The book is on Amazon or, or other sellers. It's called Exposed, Why Our Health Insurance is Incomplete and What Can Be Done About It. And we'll get uh, links and notes to all that on the website for everybody. And that said, that's uh, Christopher Robertson. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Chris. This was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, stay safe out there. My pleasure. You too, guys. Take care. Thank you. Appreciate the work you do.